0: Well, will remain standing as we come to our text for the evening. It's in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, moving on through chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians one twenty-four through 2, 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. and for all who have not for all those who i have not seen face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge i say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments for though i am absent in body yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word, and you may be seated. Let me me pray for us as, as we begin. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text in the book of Colossians. We thank you that we could come to it and know that all scripture is profitable profitable to teach, to encourage, to warn. We pray that through your Spirit that you would do that to us. If we are in the midst of struggles with sin, I pray that you would uh, encourage us to, to take steps of faith and follow Christ, that you would convict us of sin. If we are discouraged, that you would encourage us with the hope of Christ. Father, we pray that you would do your work in those ways and so many others. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, As I was reading the passage, uh, you might have noticed, you might have reacted to it as I did towards the beginning of this week when I was was looking at it, which is to notice that there's a number of things going on in here. Paul Paul seems to be moving uh, in a number of different places. He's moving from topic to topic. He's introducing things. So I just want to take some time right at the beginning and and introduce it to us and kind of jump into it this way, uh, by saying, I think it's pretty clear that humans learn by imitation. Um, so so you just look at how God causes us to, to, to learn about living life. He, he places us as infants in a family uh, where we can not only hear instructions from parents, but we can watch. We could, we could watch how people live lives daily. Um, you think of... Um, Wheaton College next door. So uh, my father's a coach. I, was, I spent some time with him on, on Father's Day, so it's on my mind. I'm sure the, the coaches at Wheaton College uh, would love if they had juniors or seniors on their team so that the freshmen uh, who haven't seen how a, a college schedule works, haven't seen how um, the work ethic that it takes to, to be successful there can watch and learn from, from those upperclassmen what it takes to succeed and, and, and to win. Uh, I mean, you, th- you Think also of biographies uh, biographies have been uh, popular, regardless of the genre so, so uh, aspiring politicians, aspiring uh, business people, aspiring missionaries would, would just read biographies of, of the people in their in their field, and they would catch a vision of, of not only what they did but kind of absorb the values, absorb uh, the beliefs that they that they would have and, and I think that that 's relevant for us tonight in Colossians because uh, what this passage is, it's not a full biography of Paul, but it's a snapshot or a, a portrait of, of how his life and his calling intersects with a group of people in, in the city of, of Colossae. So, so Paul earlier uh, in his life, as recorded in Acts 9, had been called. Uh, he had been called as an apostle to spread Christ's name among, among and to the Gentiles. And then in the exact same passage, he's actually called to another thing, uh, which is he's called to suffer in the midst of it. Uh, so from then on out, it's pretty clear if you read Paul's writings, that central to his identity, central to just who he is, central to the gospel proclamation moving forward are the two things. There's a proclaiming of the name of Jesus and there's a suffering for his sake to enable it to happen. And so, so the intersection between Colossae and that is that when Paul hears about these Colossians, and he does hear about them, he, he in fact, as we learned earlier, he, he never visited the city. He heard of their faith in Christ and he was rejoicing at it. Somebody else planted This church, but he heard about it, and he knew himself that he had a stewardship from God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to suffer for them. And and it's like what what this passage is painting is actually this portrait of of just the love and power of Christ that takes over as he fully commits to this calling on his life. Because as I was looking at it this week, if you would if you would read it, uh, you know, throughout the week. What you would notice is right before, in this passage we were looking at last week, this beautiful passage that we were looking at last week. And what you'll notice in the passages after this is that there's arguments that Paul is giving to people as to why they should stick with Jesus Christ. He, I mean, in the passage last week, there's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's the image of the invisible God. Why would you go anywhere else? He's going to say the same thing after, but here he actually takes a break. He could have continued on that argument, but he's actually taking a break from that and he's becoming really personal. Uh, And he's becoming personal and he's giving us this portrait, this snapshot of actually the life, not just the arguments of why we should stay with Jesus, not just the arguments of why it's good for people to continue in the faith, but actually the types of lives that can be lived so as to bring other people involved. Because the means that God uses in this world to keep people from being swayed is, is the active obedience of Christians, an obedience in their calling, a fully absorbing their calling, just like Paul here is, is imaging for us uh, to keep them from being, uh, as he says in verse four, deluded with plausible arguments, because that's where all this is going. He, he's living a life so that at the very end, these people are growing in Christ rather than being pulled away from Christ. And this, this passage, passage is just a snapshot of the type of life that it looks like, uh, that, that God uses uh, to do that. And I think it's providential, actually, for us that we would come across this passage in this day and age, because I think a number of people would be noticing, and perhaps there's a number of people in here who would notice that perhaps I have a friend, perhaps I have a child, perhaps I have a grandchild, perhaps I feel in myself kind of these forces that would pull someone away from Jesus Christ, whether inside of the church in broader culture and so by seeing not only the reasons why, which is what we covered last week, what we will cover the reasons why of why you should stick with Christ, here we learn what, what type of people should we be? Uh, how could we imitate Paul as he's calling others to stay and stick with Jesus Christ? So we're just going to look at it in kind of the, the, the two halves of, of this passage. On the first half, it's going to be in 124 uh, to 27. It's just kind of the call of God on Paul's life. And then really throughout, but mainly 28 through 25, you see uh, just a life that's fully given over to it that I'll I'll just summarize as joyfully toiling for others' maturity in Christ. Number one, the call. Uh, This is found uh, 124 to 27. I'll I'll just read them. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh i'm filling up what's lacking in christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church so that's the first half suffering and then the proclamation of which i became a minister to according to the stewardship from god that was given to me for you to what to make the word of god fully known to make known this this mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them, God's chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, so this, this recounting by Paul is lining up exactly with the calling of Christ on his life that we talked about in the intro from Acts 9. God, God called him to proclaim the name of Jesus among the, the Gentiles, and God called him to suffer for their sake. And he's saying in this passage, I'm rejoicing that I'm suffering for your sake. I'm rejoicing and, and I'm serving and, and toiling for you by opening up the word of God on, on your behalf. Um, but some of you probably noticed, and I should just answer the elephant in the room. Some of you might've noticed in 124 uh, that there was a strange phrase that he used uh, toward, towards the end of the verse it's one of those phrases that if it wasn't in the Bible and you just wrote it in a paper, you, you would like certainly almost be, be knocked off for, for error in theology. It, in my flesh, Paul's saying, I'm filling up what's, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake. I am filling up, Paul, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake. I was This week, I was uh, thinking about it this week, like how many times in Christian history has, has just faithful Christians been reading their Bibles and Colossians in the morning and just like gone back to that verse after they read it. And just certainly like I misunderstood that one. Like it's not, it's not saying that. Um, probably a number, uh, probably a number. It's a, it's not a phrase that's apparent, uh, that's it, clear what he's, what he's meaning at the beginning. Um, we know what it, we know what it doesn't mean. It's very clear when, when Christ said on the cross, it is finished that the atoning work of Christ is finished, that the gospel can go out, uh, that the people of God can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That that much is clear. So Paul must be referring uh, to something else. Lots could be said. Um, Josh Maurer actually was really helpful this week. He's written a paper on it. Um, and I'm just going to volunteer that if you have questions, just you could take the next four or five hours after and just go email Josh, go go at him. Um, and I'm sure he'll be happy that, that I sent you, sent you his way. Uh, but to summarize kind of what some people think Paul's saying here it is really this. Uh, in Acts 9, uh, Christ says when Paul's persecuting the church, hey, you're persecuting me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me. And it's an interesting phrase, right? So Paul is persecuting the church of God, and then Christ appears to him, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So there's some sort of like mystical union between the the sufferings of the church and and the sufferings of Christ, so that Paul hearing that, thinking about it, could say, you know, the sufferings of the church are are the sufferings of Christ. Maybe that 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 can make sense. And then other people would say, well, there's a passage in in Revelation 6. Uh, It's this beautiful passage of the martyrs who are praying to God, and they're just saying, hey, when are you going to come? When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to avenge our blood? And God answers them directly, verbally, right then. And he says, I will, but I'm going to do it when the full number is complete. So, so, so they're thinking about that, that one too. So, okay. So the martyrs are saying, when are you, when are you going to do this? God's saying when, when the full number of martyrs is complete, there must be a number, there must be like an amount of martyrs. There must be an, an amount of suffering that God has ordained for his church so that Paul, who's in prison right now, as he's writing this, could say, I'm just in my life taking on so much suffering uh, that, that there's just going to be less left over for you. Uh, that, that it's kind of an act of service, act of love for your sake. That's, that's what some people uh, would say. Others could go to Philippians 2 uh, there um, and, and kind of actually combine it with with Paul's view of his life. In Philippians 2, Paul's talking about suffering there. And he's actually, he's talking about a gift that the Philippians were trying to get to him. So they'd, they'd given him money to support him on his mission. And then somebody actually suffered to get it to him. And he said to this church, I'm glad that this person, Epaphroditus, suffered that he filled up what was lacking in your gift to me. So, so filled up, lacking, is the exact same, exact same words that he's using here. So some people would say, oh, well, very clearly what, what was happening there was the people had a full gift that would benefit Paul. The only problem was that there was, there was suffering that was needed to get, get it to him. And that was all that was lacking. It was just the transportation of it. And when you combine that with Paul's idea of his life, that he realizes that Christ has paid, that Christ has purchased for us eternal life, but that there's suffering that's needed by his, by his, by his missionaries, by, by those who go out for the sake of his name, that that's what's lacking. It, it's actually the suffering that's needed to... Uh, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of people would say, you know, these, these two aren't mutually exclusive. But for us, I, um, I just want to make a couple points for us that both of them are gloriously true, uh, that it is absolutely true that when you are suffering, you are never suffering alone. Christ, there is a union between Christ and his church such that when when we are Suffering persecution. Christ is suffering persecution. He's suffering with us. There's a a communion, there's a union with Christ in that suffering. And it is also true, gloriously true, that God uses suffering to advance the gospel, which is true uh, in the words of Scripture and used throughout church history, story after story after story on this behalf. So so that's the first half. Uh, Paul is suffering. Uh, for them, but he's also proclaiming Christ. What we see is he re- he's received a stewardship. Stewardship itself is, it's actually talking in monetary terms, so he, he's kind of received something that is God's. Uh, it is God's church. It is God's gospel message, and Paul himself uh, is a steward of this. It, what His job is to just minister to this church by proclaiming Jesus Christ to them. Um, And it is stunning what he says and stunning what he does with it, because what he says, he summarizes opening the scriptures, making the word of God fully known to them as proclaiming Jesus Christ. And the depth of how much he connects to Jesus Christ in these passages, what it means for Paul uh, to preach, to teach for us, to live lives that are centered on Jesus Christ. This passage is a template uh, for how detailed and, and how much meditation we could have about, how, about Christ being the center of everything that we do. So just walking through it. In one twenty-four, the sufferings of Christ the sufferings of Paul, he's actually the suffering, uh, he's filling up their Christ's afflictions. Verse Uh, 24 as well. The church, how is it defined? It's Christ's body. Later on in 25 to 27, the center of the message that Paul is proclaiming is Christ. The center of Christian spirituality is Christ in us. Verse 29, the energy to toil for this in others is actually the energy of Christ, that Christ is working in him. In 2, 1 and 2, the, the mystery of God is Christ. Verses 3, three to the end, uh, the tr- where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge held? Jesus Christ. What does he rejoice in? The firmness of their faith In Christ, we could go on. I mean, in the next passage, it's going to be what have people received? Christ. Uh, What? What do they do? They should walk in Christ. Uh, What else? They should be rooted and built up in Christ. You could go through the whole book of Colossians and see. uh, I was. It's amazing to see how centered the Christian life is on Jesus Christ. It's so easy too to forget that. It's. It's easy to move into modes. Uh, forgetting the invisible God's work in our lives, both foundationally and just his presence every day in what he does. And Paul here is just saying, I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ. The, the type of people who call people back to Christ, like Paul's doing here, like we want to be. I don't know how you could do that without knowing and seeing Jesus Christ in daily life. There, there's so many ways that we could point to him out and encourage other people to see him through that as, as well. But just the final note on this, on, on the calling, is actually to know in 25 to 27 that Paul doesn't just say that it's information of Jesus Christ. He actually talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in us. And I think that that's really important because uh, there's a guy named Trevin Wax, who's a really insightful Christian thinker. He gave a talk in 2019 uh, that was so good. It's actually be, it's turning into a book. It should be out later this year. Uh, and he starts off uh, that that talk, actually, by making the argument that the Christian church is not in the most danger uh, when new ideas come. We might think it would be, like when postmodernism is kind of coming in, that's when the church is in, in the most danger of people falling away. He, he makes the point that actually churches are in the, the, face their greatest challenges. It's actually when old truths fail to wow, uh, because it's when people are bored. It's only when people are bored that they want to move on to something else, or it's only when people don't understand the value of what they have that they want to replace it with something else. So, so if we're a church that not only wants to stay steadfast in Christ, but be a people who are fruitful in helping others do the same, not only just seeing Christ, but seeing the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's key for us to do that. And, and I, I think more than even me explaining, I think maybe the most helpful thing you could do on this is just think of an, think of an older, mature Christian who you know, who seems like they're just amazed with Jesus Christ uh, and just shoot them an email, uh, set up a call, set up a coffee, ask them the question of just how did you do it in, in your life uh, and just sit there and learn, learn from them, learn, learn from their example and do that, and then just become uh, those sorts of people more and more, because there, there is no depth uh, to the to the wisdom, to the knowledge, of the glory of Jesus Christ in us. So so that's Paul's that's Paul's call. Uh, but but a call is one thing; uh, an execution is is something else. I was recently um, reminded, actually, of of Bernie Madoff's story. So. Uh, probably a number of you have, have heard of him. He, he ran the largest Ponzi scheme in the history, that we, the largest Ponzi scheme that we know of in the history of the United States up to this point. He was a, he was a money manager. He would take people's money. He was a, supposedly investing it. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, he was passing it along. He was using it himself. He, he, he was a, supposed to be a steward of their, of their money, but uh, he wasn't serving them at all. He was, he was serving his own needs, so kind of as we, as we look at the next half of this, of this passage, we get to see, well, okay, so Paul's been given the stewardship to suffer and, and to proclaim Christ to this people. What actually does, what's, it, what's happening? Is he doing it? It's the, the opposite of, of Bernie Madoff. He, he, is, he is joyfully toiling uh, and, and working and suffering for their sake to see them mature in Jesus Christ. So just at the very beginning, at the very end of this passage, he is just rejoicing. He's rejoicing in suffering. He is rejoicing uh, that, he, that they are standing firm. You, you don't do that unless you're emotionally invested in, in others. I mean, I, unless you love somebody, unless you're committed to, the, to this task, uh, you, you wouldn't be emotionally invested enough to actually be rejoicing when other people are doing well—it's such a hard thing, actually, in the Christian life—to have my emotions not just tied to my circumstances, but my emotions to see myself as a steward to help others. Uh, so follow Christ that actually I'm rejoicing. I just I see joy welling up in me when other people are doing well. It just points the power of Christ in in His life in that way. And he's toiling. Uh, he's toiling for their sake. The, the word he uses is agony. Um, he's agonizing uh, for, their, for their sake. And, and what that looks like, because he never met them, uh, was he was praying every day for these people. We know that earlier. We know that later in Colossians. He's praying every single day uh, for these people that they would be mature in Jesus Christ, um, it's hard work. It's invisible work that, that He's doing. Uh, probably the other work that He's doing is He's thinking about what He's going to write to them in in this letter. Uh, and it reminds me of actually of a friend that I had in Michigan who said something that that surprised me because I had, I had never heard a peer at least uh, say something like this. He was a he was a pretty sharp guy. Um, And he actually told me at one point that he felt called, that it was like part of his ministry to people, to people in the church, to when he heard that somebody was struggling with something uh, intellectually in in the Christian faith, like a friend of his, Um, or when he saw like a, a controversy coming, he saw it as his stewardship out of love to go ahead of them and just spend hours alone by himself with books. Uh, or in prayer, just with the word, and he just felt like the need to meditate on these, so that next time it came up in conversation for these people, that he could just help them out in that way. It, it, was, it was a, um, he would probably consider himself to be an introvert, uh, and, and I, think that, I think that there could be a number of people who would read a passage like this, and seeing even just the idea of me helping other people in Jesus Christ and just immediately connect that to kind of an extroverted personality. Like I'm not thinking in themselves, I'm not that type of person who spends uh, so much time with others. I need to spend some time uh, by by myself throughout the day to recharge, to re-energize. I thought it was just a beautiful picture of Christ's love, of toiling in him as a church member uh, to play his role, to play his part uh, by thinking and helping them uh, in his way, using his gifts uh, in those ways there. So ultimately, uh, it, it is the power of Christ, both in Paul, it's the power of Christ in that individual to see it, to, to have the love uh, well up in there. And then, then finally, just as we, as we wrap up the content of this passage, uh, as Paul is, again, covering a lot of different topics in this passage Uh, There's just one more thing to focus on, and then I'm going to end with a story uh, that I hope will bring it it to the 21st century as we've just been looking at Paul's life there, this portrait of a life that is committed to fulfilling his call and call people uh, to not be deluded with plausible arguments, but call them to further faith in Christ. And we see his aim. The aim of Christ is clear in 29, 129, the end. I'm just going to read 29. He summarizes it this way. For I toil, struggling with all his energy that he power... Oh, sorry, 28. Um, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, what? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The aim of Paul's ministry is is not just conversions. It's not as though we've brought you into the church and we're content because now you'll, you'll attend and, uh, and be here. Um, it would be as if he was a small group leader and he's not just happy that there's attendance and good conversation here and now. There's a goal, there's an aim that he's Going for that 's driving everything that he 's doing, everything that he 's saying, these warnings, these teachings that he 's giving the the aim the direction he 's going at is every single person here in this small group, every single person here in this church, everyone who he 's interacting with my goal for you is that you would be mature in christ so so what, what does that um, mean yeah at the simplest level, he's actually just using the term of growing up. Um, What what does a child do? They just mature. Um, And what's a good way to think about that? I find it helpful to think, what are we called? And then what do we do? So what what am I called? I'm called a Christian. I'm called someone who follows Jesus Christ. I want to think how he thinks. I want to believe what he believes. I want to see the world as he sees it. I want to do the things that he did. So that's on one hand. Uh, but the more I mature into that, a Christian, a follower of Christ, a little Christ, the more I mature into that, the more I become that, the more i 'll believe what he believes or do what he does. So the process of maturity is simply just saying where in my life, where in the lives of those who I love are there beliefs or practices or Motivations that aren't aligning with Christ, that aren't aligning with Christ in us, the the fully formed, mature Christ living out of us. And then from there, there's this toiling for it, just mainly actually in prayer uh, for others, mainly just praying that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would actually be knit together with one another in love, because that's the way uh, that we come to know Jesus Christ. The Christian life is intellectual, but it's not just intellectual. The path for Paul uh, is that it's actually through both the preaching of the word, and then in chapter two, the, the knitting together of hearts in love. That are the two things that are necessary for us to come to know Jesus Christ. So let me um, let me bring this for us to a close by talking about um, a story that I that I kind of heard came across. In the 21st century that I think to me helped clarify uh, in just a couple sentences all the different topics that Paul's talking about, what this portrait is and what it means for us today. So um, in 1993, uh, William F. Buckley, um, who apparently he's a political, um, not a correspondent, um, some sort of, he was an editor of a magazine, uh, talked about politics quite a bit he heard the phrase from somebody, uh, the kind of common phrase that we all know, don't just stand there, do something. Uh, and he, um, he thought to himself, and then he said to some people in just informal conversation, I, I actually think that at this point in American history, the, the real thing that we should be doing, uh, it should actually be, uh, we shouldn't just do something, we should stand somewhere. We should, we should have conviction. We, could, we should stay uh, somewhere. So in God's providence, Al Mohler, uh, who preached at the, at the missions conference a little while ago, uh, who is currently the, the president of Southern Seminary down in Louisville, Kentucky, he heard this, and he heard it at a good time in his life because he was about three weeks uh, from the first sermon that he was going to preach as the president of that seminary. Um, and it, the SBC and Southern Seminary at the time, it was just a battle. It was in it was in turmoil. Uh, there were so many churches. It was like half and half of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention at that time. Uh, half of them were were just falling away from the faith in the fact that they would just say Jesus wasn't really God. Uh, there was no virgin birth. Uh, the Bible's not really inspired at all. At all, it's just it's human writings. And then another group of people who would just believe the Bible as we, as we would believe it, as Christians have believed it for the past 2,000 years. And, and there were actually a ton of seminary professors who had been appointed uh, by an old uh, president at, toward, towards this fact. So, so there's just a divided seminary that he's walking into. And he knows the first sermon that I preach is going to be just like the, the clarion call of, of what we're about, what this new administration is about. So he chose the phrase from William F. Buckley. He, he gets up there, and the title of his first sermon is Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Uh, and, and in it, he says, I'm just going to read it a, couple, a couple sentences from it. I think he says it really well. Uh, he says, We as a seminary can never measure our life and work in terms of activity or statistics. In the view of eternity, we will be judged most closely not on the basis of how many courses were taught, how many students were trained, how many syllabi were printed, or how many books were published, but on whether or not we kept the faith. The other issues are hardly irrelevant. They're valid markers of institutional stewardship and ministry, but there's a prior question. Does the institution and those who teach here stand for God's truth and do so without embarrassment? That sermon title summarizes Paul's goals for this church. Don't be swayed. Don't just do something. Don't just keep meeting, but actually stand somewhere. Say, stand in faith in Jesus Christ. But then 10 years later, he, he preached another thing. So, so the battle was won. Uh, the, the professors who were teaching that Jesus wasn't God, that he hadn't been born of a virgin, were kicked out of the seminary. And it was replaced by uh, people, by by people who would believe just like us, um, who would believe the Orthodox Christian faith. But what he noticed there is actually the danger that churches like us face uh, is to become stagnant or passive. So so he preached the next time uh, at his 10-year anniversary there, and he entitled the sermon, uh, "Don't, Don't Just Stand There, Do Something. And there again, so he's talking there, he's just saying, hey, the New Testament is full of action verbs. Uh, The Christian life, Christian discipleship, Christian ministry, they're marked by action, not passivity, engagement, not disengagement. And the the whole point is to say that at this stage, we're solid in the faith. The next step for us to take is action, to, to press forward. And that is, I think, the image that this passage has for us today. That we should not just stand in our firm faith in Jesus Christ, but we can follow the example of Paul and be fully committed in our way to helping others not be deluded by plausible arguments uh, in, in that way. So, so the, the final question that I would have for you, walking away, what, what's, the, what's one takeaway for this is to just ask Who? Who's the one person that you would think of right now, first person that comes to mind? When I, when I say the question of somebody might be deluded by plausible arguments, what's the one person that I could think of that might do that? And then what's the one thing that I could do, even this week, to help them in that way, just in the exact same way that Paul worked and toiled uh, for these believers in Colossians? So uh, that is the call that uh, this biography, this portrait, um, that, that God has for us today. Let me pray and close and then we'll sing. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this portrait of Paul's life, this snapshot uh, that we have of, of a faithful worker in Jesus Christ who toiled to keep others stable and steadfast in the faith. And Father, we pray. We pray that through the power of your spirit, through your means, that you would bring people into our lives that would do that for us, that when we stray, that when we need help, that you would bring guidance and strength in that way. Father, we pray as well that you would allow us the gift of being ministers of your strength to others, that we would, uh, over the course of our lives, come to know the joy of preserving, protecting the gospel, and preserving and protecting your body, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.